Hello, Fellowship. Thank you for participating in the elder nomination process. After a deliberate season of prayer and discussion, our elders have three new candidates for the office of elder to present to you today. Michael Collier, Brett Rings, and Brian Denman. If you don't already know these gentlemen, we would like for you to meet them. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Michael Collier. My wife Mandy and I have been part of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas for over 20 years, serving mainly as leaders in the community and small group ministries. Mandy and I have been married for 21 years. Our daughter Michaela is 16 years old and we have a son, Matthias, who will be 14 very soon. One thing that has me jazzed up right now is the growing number of people wanting to worship together again. The pandemic was hard for everyone but I didn't realize how much I had taken for granted what worshiping together corporately meant to my life. It has been rejuvenating to sing, pray, and listen to the preaching of the word with more and more people each weekend. I'm excited about the future here at Fellowship, and I'm honored to be nominated as a candidate to serve as one of your elders. Thank you. Hi, Fellowship. My name is Brett Rings, and my wife, Leanne, and I have been married for 34 years. We originally came to fellowship 21 years ago because of the small groups. Leanne and I strongly believe in the benefits of small groups, where you live life with one another in community. In addition to leading small groups, we are also involved in children's ministry, greeting, and I help coach a group of men in Springdale. I'm both humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate for elder here at fellowship. Thank you. Hey fellowship, my name is Brian Dittman. My wife Megan and I have been involved at Fellowship Bible Church for the past 13 years. It has been a joy to lead community groups, Financial Peace University, Discover Fellowship, as well as serve in the children's ministry over the years. Megan and I have been married for 15 years and have a seven-year-old son named Sage, a four-year-old daughter named Hattie Pearl, and a two-month-old son named Crew. I love that Fellowship is a gospel-centered church that strives for our name to be nowhere and our fingerprints to be everywhere. I am humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate to serve as one of your elders. Thank you. Thank you, Brett, Michael, and Brian for your willingness to participate in the elder nomination process and be considered a candidate for the office of elder. It is a tremendous responsibility to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. And your willingness to be considered a candidate speaks highly of your character, integrity, commitment to Christ, and service in our church family. Now, if you are a member of fellowship, we have one more request of you. If for some biblical reason you feel you cannot follow a particular candidate's leadership, please email me, mirapier at fellowshipnwa.org, stating your biblical objection and do so no later than Monday, March 6th. I will call you personally and we can discuss your objection, which must have merit based on biblical elder qualifications. We require that all elders have 100% affirmation from our body. If you have no objection, we assume that you are affirming the candidates that the elders have set forth from the pool of nominees that you provided. Please pray for these new candidates as well as our current elders. We are grateful to each of you who participated in the nomination process. 
And with your affirmation, we will add Michael Collier, Brett Rings, and Brian Denman to our board this fall. And finally, we would like to thank Steve Lampkin, Stephen Weber, Rod Easley, and Dick Nervick for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your appreciation. Blessings to each of you. Our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your appreciation. Blessings to each of you. Well, good morning, fellowship. Um, so I believe it was last week um, that Abel stood up here and uh, he asked if you guys would move to the center of your section. I don't know if you remember this, but you actually did it. Um, and so Abel's, you're right on the, come on up here because I keep trying it and it doesn't work. So show me how it's done one more time. Yeah, so what, what you have to say is you have to say, if you wouldn't mind scooching, the word scooch is critical. Scooch, you give a dramatic okay. pause and you kind of look, you just kind of look at him. <laughs> That's how you do it. So don't disappoint Seth, please scooch. To the center of your section. It really does help uh, our ushers find people's seats as they come in and you know the traffic issue. So there will be people joining us a little late. Um, if you are new um, here with us this morning, we're so glad that you came, and we hope that uh, this morning will just be a place that you find uh, the presence of Christ and get to experience him in a fresh way, um, and so we're glad that you're here, and as I was thinking about this morning, we're going to be talking about humility and uh, how God exalts the humble and when we think about humility, um, if we get a good picture of what God is like, the result is humility. If we really see God for who he is, um, we can't help but bend the knee to that kind of character. Um, and so I was thinking about that song, uh, this great old hymn, How Great Thou Art, and us singing that together to just get a good picture of God and, and our place uh, under him. And uh, I had a friend recently, uh, he was cleaning out his library, and he said, hey, do you want this book? And I said, sure. Uh, it's the Psalms and Hymns of Isaac Watts. And Isaac Watts, he was a, a psalm and hymn writer uh, back in the late 17th century, early 18th century. And uh, he wrote over 750 psalm lyrics or hymn lyrics, uh, which is amazing. And... Um, one of the things that I found really interesting as I did a little research on him was he was right as the church was starting to transition to hymns from only singing psalms. And so he was right in the middle of the, the psalms hymns wars. And so it's so funny because, you know, we've, we've recently kind of, now it's, it's the old hymns versus the new contemporary worship songs. And so it's always been a thing. So that was comforting as well. Um, and so we, we want to embrace both around here. Um, but anyway, I wanted to share his psalm, how, what he wrote for Psalm 8. Um, because Psalm 8 is such a great uh, picture of the greatness of God and, and who we are in light of that. And so I just want to read it over us, and then we'll worship together. It says, O Lord, our Lord. 
how wondrous great is thine exalted name. The glories of thy heavenly state let men and babes proclaim. When I behold thy works on high, the moon that rules the night, and stars that well adorn the sky, those moving worlds of light. Lord, what is man or all his race who dwells so far below that thou shouldst visit him with grace and love his nature so? That thine eternal son should bear to take a mortal form made lower than his angels are to save a dying worm. Let him be crowned with majesty who bowed his head to death and be his honors sounded high by all things that have a breath. Jesus, our Lord, how wondrous great is thine exalted name. The glories of thy heavenly state, let the whole earth proclaim. And may we join in that as well this morning. Let's stand together, church, and worship.
Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Holy Son, author and perfecter of our faith, we fix our eyes on you. Holy Spirit, wisdom and truth made manifest, we tune our ears to you. We raise our voices, our hands, our tithes and worship to you. We give freely and without compulsion. Lord, breathe your life into these gifts, that through them your kingdom may come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy God, you are great and greatly to be praised.
is forever yours. We lift our voices with the centuries of believers who have come before us and with the voices joining now and with the voices joining to come. We magnify your name with thousands and thousands and millions of hallelujahs. You're worthy, you are good, and you are kind, and you're patient, and you're just, and you're full of mercy. Lord, we submit our hearts to you now to hear from you. We tune our ears to the voice of your spirit. Let us hear it. Would you prompt our hearts? Would you plant seeds that will grow into life change that reflects you? We want to be a people marked by Jesus. We receive from you, Lord. You are so good. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. morning. How are you this morning? Good, good. Hey, it was two Wednesdays ago, February 8th at noon. Uh, chapel had just ended at Asbury University in the little town of Wilmore, Kentucky. Small handful of students lingered after chapel. I think I'd heard that it was nine students that lingered, and they were just talking, catching up with one another, and one of them turned to his group of friends and shared a struggle with sin that he had been walking through. The group chose to gather around him and pray for him. Then another student began to share a struggle with sin that she had been wrestling with. The group prayed for them. And then those nine, sitting in a room of larger than this, chose to just sing a cappella together. Some students were walking to lunch and heard that and poked their head into the chapel to see what was going on. And they came in and joined in the singing. And then that group began to pray together, share, confess some sin, read scripture over each other, sing some more songs. A word got out that some students had gathered after chapel had already ended, and a few more students that Wednesday morning walked over. By Wednesday afternoon, more students were gathering to pray, to confess sin, to read scripture, to sing worship songs, and they chose to stay into Wednesday night, and then they stayed all through the night, and that gathering began to grow. Thursday morning, students chose not to go to classes, but headed to the chapel, and they began to gather in groups to pray, to read passages of scripture, to continue singing and, and worshiping together. By Thursday, that group grew. By Friday, I got a text asking me, hey, Mark, have you heard what's going on at Asbury University, and I said, no. By Friday night, the group had swelled. The chapel was now full of capacity, over 1,500. By Saturday morning, they had to open up all the overflow auditoriums. By Sunday and Monday, vans and buses began to pour into Asbury University as people came by the thousands. All rooms at capacity, all rooms and quiet, simple worship and prayer and confession and word, all of them going through the night. By the one-week mark, at the end of the next Wednesday, tens of thousands were gathering, so much so that it caught the curiosity of press. And so the Washington Post sent a reporter, Atlantic Monthly sent a reporter. The Atlantic Monthly wrote an interesting little phrase. They said something, quote, radically simple, 
and wonderful seems to be happening among Gen Z. Oh, I hope they're right. Oh, I hope they're right. It wasn't bizarre. It wasn't weird. It was just growing, and God seemed to be pleased to move in an extraordinary way through the very ordinary means of believers gathering in word and prayer and confession and worship, you know, the same kinds of things we do when we gather together. That continued until this little town of Wilmore, Kentucky was overrun with traffic, and yet the tens of thousands continued to come. For some reason, traffic seemed to be a a small price to pay an inconvenience for a renewal from God. And all God's people here say, "Uh uh-huh. They say, we know that. By Thursday, they decided to end the last service. 15 days of a fresh encounter with God in a very ordinary chapel, in a very ordinary town, through some very ordinary believers on an ordinary day. And I just happened to ask one simple question. Why, oh God? Why there? Why then? Why them? Why not us? Why not now? Why not here? What is the kind of heart that God seems pleased to revive? And I think we find the answer to that in Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5 in our regularly scheduled sermon series. I do not think it's by accident that it came after this few weeks in our nation. By the way, more of those gatherings among Jim Z spilled out into Tennessee and Alabama at schools there as well. Daniel 4 and 5 We're calling this little time a tale of two kings. We're going to look at King Nebuchadnezzar. We're also going to look at his grandson, King Belshazzar. And we start with King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. It's an open letter to the world. (laughs) That's what you can do when you're the ruler of the known world. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And I know what you're asking. You're saying, what happened to the Nebuchadnezzar of the last few weeks? I mean, in chapters one and two, wasn't he the guy who was constantly threatening everybody to tear you limb from limb and then reduce your house to rubble? In chapter three, wasn't he the one who threw Daniel's three friends in the furnace and decided that wasn't enough, so he heated it seven times its heat? And now he starts to sound like either the secretary general of the United Nations or maybe running for a beauty contest where he's wishing world peace and prosperity on everybody. Not only that, he has Yahweh worship coming out of his mouth. Something has changed his life. That something started with a dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 4, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. And as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So by now, we've been in Daniel long enough that we know exactly what he does when he has a dream that he cannot interpret. Yeah, he calls in the dream team. Oh, come on, it was really funny before 6 a.m. over coffee this morning. It was just me and my iPad, and I just laughed. 
And I so much want this to be a youth, uh, multi-gen service where our students were in this. They love dad jokes, don't they? We all do. Magicians and counselors couldn't interpret it. Daniel was called in as a result. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, here's my dream. This tree was in the middle of the land and it grew so enormous, so mighty, so lush that its fruit actually fed all of the beasts of the field. They found shade under it. The birds in the, uh, of the whole earth came and could nest and find protection in that tree. And, and then an angel came and cut that tree down but left the stump. But then with the stump, the angel chained up the stump, a collar around it and a chain to hold it. And then that stump seemed to lose its mind. It started to act like an animal and live like an animal, and therefore it had to be treated like an animal. And that lasted for seven times, seven seasons. And then its mind was suddenly restored to it. And then we see the purpose of that dream. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones, the angels, and they declare a verdict. Why? So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we're told, was given to him about 2,500 years ago, so that the living, that would be us, the living would know and see the truth about who God is. An ancient dream to a pagan king so that we who are alive, been recorded in Scripture for all the time, might, number one, see God for who he is. Number two, actually see life for what life really is. And number three, see ourselves for who we are really are. Because when we don't see life that way, everything else is a delusion. See, we live with this illusion of control that we somehow, quote, got this. You go. You got this. And when we buy into an illusion of control like that, we are living deluded. And God loved Nebuchadnezzar so much, he sent him a dream to give him a wake-up call. And I believe his dream can be our wake-up call as well. Nebuchadnezzar simply asked Daniel, what does this dream mean? And Daniel is actually brokenhearted as he tells him. In fact, the text will tell us Daniel grieved on the inside and hesitated telling him because he really had grown to love this pagan king who was his boss, one of the best for him. And he says this to him, uh, the tree is you, O king. Your majesty will come crashing down. You are gonna slip into insanity, meaning you're going to live like an animal, you're going to start looking like an animal, and the court around you is going to have to treat you like an animal. This will last for seven periods of time. By the way, we don't know how long that is. Was that seven weeks? Was that seven months? Was that seven years? Long enough to get your attention. This will last that long until you acknowledge the Most High God, and then your sanity will be restored to you. You'll come back to your senses. And Daniel moves with compassion in his life and says this in verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. 
It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So the message to the king is quite simply a call to repentance. What does it mean to repent? The word literally means to change direction, um, to make a U-turn, to, to move from life being about us to life being found in God. And that kind of repentance begins to show itself in practical ways towards others. Verse 29, does Nebuchadnezzar heed the counsel? You know the answer probably, no. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not, is, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? For one year, God had been patiently giving Nebuchadnezzar time to heed Daniel's counsel and to repent and recognize Yahweh as the rightful ruler of his life. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. And when one night, he's out on the rooftop of his palace and he looks out at what he sees and he says, oh, it's not only impressive, I'm impressive. And he says, is this not uh, Babylon that I have built by my power for my glory? Do you start to see how he sees himself as the source? He is not only the point, he is the power that pulls off the point. And that becomes his downfall. He could see the hanging gardens that he had built for his queen. By the way, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. He could look out over Babylon and see the 14 square mile grand city that was so beautiful. It had the Ishtar Gate and beautiful blue as this announcing point that you are entering greatness. He could see the high walls that were so high and so thick that a four-horsed chariot could ride on top of the fortified walls. The problem is not what Nebuchadnezzar could see. The problem is what Nebuchadnezzar could not see. To steal a line from the great Helen Keller he had sight, but no vision. He could not see Yahweh over him, undergirding him, and even empowering and working through him. He was his own source, and his heart was proud. Pride. C.S. Lewis calls pride the national religion of hell. Don't think that hell is an irreligious place. It's a very religious place, absorbed completely with the worship of self. See, at its heart, pride moves God to the side in our life. God moves peripheral, and self takes center focus. Another word for that kind of pride is the word hubris. Hubris is a way of kind of making much of ourself. Um, hubris is, uh, we have sayings for hubris, things like, that guy was born on third base, but he sure acts like he hit a triple. That's hubris. And I love my city. I actually don't just like, I love where I get to work, where I get to play, where I get to live. But hubris is 
my city's struggle. Our prosperity, our possibilities, our potential, oh, it causes us all to just start to steal the glory. I find myself driving around my town saying things like, look at all the trails we have. Now, here's a reality check. I have none of those trails. The city and a generous family has provided those trails. I ride on them. But once we begin to see our privileges as our rights, our privileges as things that were given to us, something we've earned, we have slipped in to a self-engrandizing, self-entitled hubris. And it is the spirit of our age, the air we breathe in. In athletics, we call it a swagger. And it happens in our spiritual life as well. But that's not life, it really is. That's actually a delusion. And that's Nebuchadnezzar's problem. In verse 31, the very next verse, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And the next verses tell us that Nebuchadnezzar slipped into insanity. He became animalistic. He started to think like a beast. He started to live like a beast. And the only way he became safe to himself and others was for his court to chain him up like a beast. It almost sounds like something out of a fairy tale like Beauty and the Beast. But the point is simply this. Nebuchadnezzar fell from the glory that God had originally created him for. You see, the ruler had become like the ones that mankind was supposed to rule. I noticed that this morning, Seth and I were on the same page about Psalm 8, not knowing that each other were. And Psalm 8 tells us the dignity of mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him, O God? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put him everything under his feet, flocks and herds and beasts and birds and fish. Don't you see the dignity of all humankind? And that dignity is only experienced when it's coupled with humility. Because the next line says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God made us to rule his glorious creation, to live under his authority. And when we see our lives in light of his life-giving life, then we walk humbly before him. And that's the moment we are truly awake. The most alive and awake person you've ever met is the one who humbly sees God for who he is, sees ourselves for who we are, and sees life for what it really is. That's where life is found. Paul stepped into a city filled with hubris as well. It was Athens. On one of his missionary journeys, they were so smart and they were so successful and they were that kind of town that everybody was moving to. The transplants were coming. The economy was perking. Uh, the, 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 uh, the recreation was growing and he stepped in front of them and he said, oh, don't you know, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our very being." You don't have this. He has this. Nebuchadnezzar's experience, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. 
By the way, you see another episode of that happening in the New Testament in the parable of the prodigal son. Eking out his self-made existence in a pigsty, Luke 15 says, and then he came to his senses and raised his eyes. That's what we see happening here as well. His sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high God. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what done? Nebuchadnezzar is a man who's alive and awake. I notice here he doesn't just recognize Yahweh's existence now. He actually uh, moves further than just even acknowledging Yahweh's right to rule. He bows the heart and bends the knee to Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh becomes his ruler, not just the ruler. And we begin to see a confession of faith in verse 37 that's powerful. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's an amazing confession of faith. Do you think, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven I heard a few heaven amens. I heard a mm-hmm, and I heard the mm. I'm just telling you, I'm looking for him. I want to find him. I'm going to ask if I can sit next to him at one of the banquets. And then I'm going to ask him to share his life change story with me, the same way we often do in community groups with one another, because you start to see the fresh move of God through the human life. I notice his life change. He started in... Chapter two, after seeing Daniel interpret this dream miraculously, he says to Daniel, surely your God, your God, is the God of gods. See, all he's doing is recognizing Yahweh's existence. But then he moves in chapter three, after God miraculously delivered the three friends in the furnace, and he says, no other God can save in this way. And now he's recognizing Yahweh's right to rule. Wow. You don't know that he exists, but your power is greater than anyone. But here in chapter 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven. Now he actually bends the heart and bends the knee and takes on the lordship, the leadership of Yahweh in his life. Hey, it just hit me. Don't stop praying for the person who you think is most unlikely to come to Christ. Just not out of God's reach. Verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar ends his confession saying, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, and he is. Which is why 25 years later, the second king of Babylon comes onto the scene. His name is Belshazzar. He's actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And on October the 12th, 539 BC, yes, we actually have the date in history because the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicles and lots of other ancient literature tells us about the fall of Babylon on that specific day. And there we read in chapter 5, the tale of the second king. Verse 1. 
King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. That's where we get the saying, the handwriting is on the wall. Belshazzar wanted to know its meaning. It was confusing to him. And so by now, you know, he calls in the Thank you, dad jokes never get old. And they don't do anything about it. They're confused, so they summon Daniel, and Daniel comes. And Belshazzar, the king, offers Daniel abundant riches and a high position if he can tell him what the writing means. And Daniel, in shorthand, basically says, keep your junk, king, but I still will tell you what it means. And in verse 18, this is what we read. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal until he acknowledged the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. There's defiance. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear, or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You hear reminiscent of this, Paul's words, this is the God in whom we live and move and have our very being. He said you wouldn't acknowledge that God. If Nebuchadnezzar was guilty of hubris, Belshazzar is guilty of defiance or an arrogance that takes that up one step further. And as a result, verse 24, Daniel continues. Therefore, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The shorthand was this, numbered, numbered, weighed and divided. And history tells us that on that very night, the Medo-Persian army, which had already sieged 
laid siege to the city of Babylon. And he camped around it for a long period of time, trying to scale these enormous walls, couldn't make it happen. Babylon, such high walls, they were fortified with supplies that some people say could have gone up to 20 years, but even if that's exaggerated, they had years worth of supplies. They knew they could outlast the Medo-Persians. Belshazzar wants to bolster the confidence of his people. We got this. So he throws an enormous banquet that lasts for weeks. And while they're drinking out of the temple goblets, the Medo-Persians start diverting the Euphrates River from going through the city of Babylon to around its walls to a dry lake. And as the riverbed drops in water volume, the Medo-Persian walked army walked knee-deep underneath the gates into Babylon and conquered the city that very night. Yeah, the kingdom was found wanting and divided. You know, there's a Korean saying that I've heard that says, touch not the glory. That's the opposite of these two kings. Nebuchadnezzar, well, he chose to claim the glory. He said, look what I did. His is a story of hubris. Again, hubris trusts in our own abilities. You and I, the word we would use is self-sufficient. I've got this. Belshazzar, his grandson, his was a story of mocking the glory. It's a story of arrogance. Both of these are a form of pride. One self-sufficiency, the other defiance. And you know, the New Testament, and both Old and New Testament actually, tell us the truth about humility and pride. And the spiritual principle echoes both in Proverbs chapter 3 and again in 1 Peter chapter 5. It tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice those are in quotation marks. That's because it quotes Proverbs chapter 3. Peter's counsel to us is this, humble yourselves therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Pride in all of its forms versus humility. That's not just a Babylonian story of two kings. That's our story as well. And God, he says, opposes the proud. I picture a stiff arming, uh, like a grown man holding back a a small child from taking swings at him. I've got this, I can take this. But he says to the humble, God gives grace. He pulls him close, there's an aid. And then he says he actually lifts him up. Pride versus humility. After David's arrogant, heinous sin of both adultery and murder, he finally confesses. And he writes his famous confession in Psalm 51, one of my favorite psalms. He closes Psalm 51 with these lines. Lord, if I could pay off my debt of sin before you, I would do it on my own. I would bring you sacrifices. In fact, I would sacrifice a thousand bulls and sheep. But I can't. Because the sacrifice you desire is a broken and contrite spirit, O Lord. Broken and contrite spirit describes a heart broken with humility. 1995, it was July, I found myself sitting in Moby Gym on the campus of Colorado State University. 
back in the late 80s through mid-90s, Lisa and I were on staff with an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's named Crew. We were there at a conference for all of the U.S. missionaries for five days. 5,000 U.S. missionaries were gathered. The conference began on a Friday night in a really good but ordinary kind of way, nothing that we hadn't experienced before. And then on Monday morning, kind of just before it was destined to end, a mild-voiced, very modest woman came to give a message that she called brokenness, the heart God revives. And as she walked through the power of the difference between proud people and humble people, she had written out a list describing both kinds of people. And she started reading the list. Proud people are this way. Broken people are this way. Proud people are this way. Humble people are this way. The list was long. As she got towards the end, I noticed I was sitting up kind of in the cheap seats, and I noticed two guys got up and worked their way down and just went to the front steps of the makeshift stage and knelt in prayer. And as the worship band came up afterwards and she's going through her closing prayer, one of them got up and grabbed one of the microphones that one of the worship singers was going to use. And he shared a sin that he had committed that had impact on the whole organization. And he asked for forgiveness and reconciliation. People gathered around him, the worship team, and prayed over him. Somebody on the keyboard continues this to play. And then others started slipping up and coming to this platform and sharing, confessing sins they had done to their small teams, to their spouses, to one another, to God. People started breaking up into small groups and praying. Now, what happened next at the best of my memory, I remember that being right before the lunch break, you know, 11, 11.30, somewhere in there. And what happened over the next 13 hours was hundreds of people lined up behind two microphones as they prayed for one another, forgave one another, confessed sin, read scripture, and worshiped God. We had littles at that time, so I had to pull out at the time to their bedtime to put them to bed. Came back early the next morning, way earlier than the meeting would started, and it rolled through the whole evening. Continued through the last day up until the end of the five days. In one ways, it was the messiest and yet most peaceful and glorious thing I'd ever been part of. This is the list that this woman shared. And what I'm gonna do is toggle through it on the screen slowly. And I'd ask that you would still your hands and relax your body, clear your mind, and begin to focus. I'll roll through the list, and you ask the Spirit of God to lead you in to greater degrees of humility because he has ever-grading increases of grace for you.
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Communion is our celebration of God's greatest lifting up in grace. The ushers will pass the elements. Would you hold those until everyone has been served and we'll eat and drink together?
Lord Jesus, we give you glory. Glory to your name. God, thanks for the work that you are doing among us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you continue to work. Now and as we leave this place, would you just continue to work? Would you just continue to grow the seeds that have been planted? Continue to humble us so that we get the joy of living under your leadership. I just want to bring up uh, Philippians 2 again as we prepare to take communion together. This is what humility looks like. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then what does God do? What does God do with that kind of humility? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, thank you for your body humbled and to the point of brokenness and death to bring us life and to lift us up. We receive it humbly this morning. Take it. And thank you for your blood poured out for the forgiveness of my sin, of each of our sins. God, we take this humbly and with thanksgiving. Take and drink. And all God's people said, Amen. You can remain standing. It'll make me go faster. Um, we have a couple things. Uh, save the date for our men's retreat coming up. Uh, take note of it starts on a Thursday night. We have so many of us that worship one and serve one on Sunday mornings, it would tank Sunday the 30th. So we're going to be back on Saturday, spend some good time with family. Um, so.